The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning, church. Great to see you today. We welcome you. Extend our welcome as well to those of you that are joining us by internet. Uh, thank you for being a part of this time. What a treasure you have as a church in this choir and band and these uh, worship leaders. They always help us come into the presence of the Lord and exalt our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm grateful, grateful for the blessing uh, that they give to us. Second Peter chapter 2 is where I want to ask you to turn. Let's continue to worship the Lord now through the study of his word. Second Peter 2, if you came in and don't have a copy of the Bible, let me encourage you to see if there's one in the rack in front of you there, or if you're at home, uh, maybe to go get one or uh, uh, open it up on the iPad or Bible if you're, uh, or a phone or something. If you're sitting close to someone that doesn't have a copy of the scriptures, maybe you can invite them to look on with you. Second Peter chapter 2. Um, I'm actually going to start reading in the middle of a verse, verse 3. Um, it's not because we ran out of time last week and that's where we ended. It's just that there's uh, a little bit of a break, not in thought, but in just moving on to a new section. So Second Peter chapter 2, in the middle of verse 3, this is what the word of the Lord says. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Now there is referring obviously to the false teachers that we talked about last week in verses 1 and 2 in the first part of verse 3. You'll remember these are individuals who by stealth bring destruction into the church. They are ones who who scandalize and pervert the gospel. They do that by persuading you, persuading me to join them and live godlessly. We listen to their voice when they say there's no judgment coming, there's no second coming of Christ. So just uh, be a child of your times and uh, engage the culture, do what you want to do. And when that happens, you know this, Unbelievers look at professing Christians who are acting like they're not Christians. And it scandalizes the gospel. That's what these men are leading people to do. And then finally, you remember, they want your money. That's what verse 3 says. Their greed, in their greed, they'll exploit you with these false words. They want you to support them and give them donations and... Uh, uh, fund their false teaching. So Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that's who we're talking about. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept into the judgment... If he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he, he brought a flood, those seven others would have been Noah's wife, his three sons, and their wives. He preserved Noah, 
with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is, what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If God did all of that, Peter says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly, or excuse me, to rescue the godly from trials, and he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. You'd have to be a hermit or at least have your head in the sand not to have recognized the escalation in recent years of things like terrorist attacks. They seem to be coming much more frequently than they did before. Another one seems in the UK last night. In addition to that, there, there seems to be more and more natural disasters happening. Have you noticed that? I mean, even in this hurricane season we're in, just a an inordinate amount of hurricanes that are affecting thousands and thousands of lives. We see an escalation in that. Anytime something like that happens, we also see an escalation in questions that are asked. They're not new questions. Questions you've heard as you've had gospel conversations with people. Maybe you've said them themselves, things like, why, why is there so much suffering in the world? Then it becomes personal when it comes a religious thing. Why does God let that happen? Why, why, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And then it moves to skepticism. We hear people say, if God were real, if he were a loving God, he wouldn't allow this kind of stuff to go on. We hear those, those kinds of things all the time, but maybe what we don't think about is how those same kinds of things sometimes begin to affect us as Christians. They bring us to the place sometimes, even if we never admit it, where we wonder, well, yeah, well, why does he do that? Why, why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't God do something about that situation? Why doesn't he let them get away? Why, why, why does he let them get away with that, that kind of stuff? And we may sense our spiritual knees buckling a little bit under the load of questions like that and the increasing skepticism that buys in to the philosophy that these false teachers were teaching and many teach in our day. And that is, there is no judgment. If there was a judgment, this kind of thing, this, this stuff wouldn't happen. If there was a just God and God was fair, then this kind of thing wouldn't happen. He would do something. And consequently, that's got to be evidence that Jesus isn't coming back if there is a Jesus. And consequently, there is no judgment that is coming. Even Abraham appealed to the justice of God. You remember when he was praying for Sodom, which is mentioned in this passage of Scripture. You don't need to turn to this, but just listen in Genesis 18. Abraham is praying for God to save the righteous people that, are, that might still be in the city of Sodom. God says, I'm just going to wipe it out. 
Abraham's praying that God would, would at least pull the righteous people out. And he's appealing to his justice. Listen to it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, Abraham says, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. It, it just doesn't make sense. It's not in keeping with who you are as a righteous judge that you would, you would let the, the, the righteous have the same end and, and be under the same judgment as the wicked. So Abraham says that the righteous fare as the wicked. Listen to this. Far be that from you. That's not your character, God, to treat these people the same, to do the same thing to the wicked that you do to the righteous. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham asking the same question that many people are asking today. If this is, if this is the God that you say is God and he's a He's a good God and he's a fair God and he's a just God. Doesn't it make sense that he would do what is right? And, and Peter's readers, Christians in that day, some of them were beginning to wonder, well, I wonder if those guys are right. Because it does make sense. It does make sense that, 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 that God wouldn't, that he wouldn't let the good people experience the same judgment as the, the bad people and, and, and that he would do what is right and he would do what is fair. And it's easy, even as believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians, to begin to sense the weight of this kind of thing. It was happening in Peter's day. It happens in our day. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks into that situation. He speaks into our lives basically to bring us to embrace afresh what we were singing about a moment ago. And that is that God is our help under this weight. God is the one that comes to strengthen us and lift us up and keep us from buckling and falling and our faith from crashing and burning, being shipwrecked. And so in this weighty subject of the judgment of these false teachers and people who embrace their teaching, we find a word of encouragement. We find help here in hearing God say, I am a just God and I am fair. I always have been and I always will be. And Peter reminds us about this in this passage. I think there are three major truths that he speaking into our lives to tell us about the justice of God and the fairness of God and the rightness of God. N number one, he tells us that God promises his justice in the future. That's the first thing that we'll look at. God promises that he will do justice, bring justice in the future. Secondly, we'll talk about how God has proved his justice in the past. His, his, his record shows this. And then finally, we will look at how God provides justice in the present. And that's where we find our help in, in his present justice. So basically, Peter's giving us a past, present, and future uh, look at the justice of God. Not in that order, but looking at what God has done, what he's doing, what he will do. In, in order to strengthen us and to lift us up. But at the same time, and listen to me, don't miss it to show that in his justice and in his righteousness, he will 
in fact, judge the wicked. So let's look at it. Let's start with the truth that God promises justice in the future. Sometimes when I'm joking around with my wife and poking at her a little bit, she will turn and look at me and she does this weird raised eyebrow thing where she, she can actually raise one of her eyebrows without raising the other one, you know, and she kind of looks at me and says, you better sleep with one eye open tonight, buddy. <laughs> Listen to me. Hear the word of the Lord. The judgment of God on the wicked is sleeping with one eye open. That's what, what Peter tells us the last half of verse three, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Isn't that what you think sometimes? I know I do. You look at a terrorist attack. You look at innocent people dying. You look at seemingly the executioners getting away with it. And it, it seems like, even if we never articulate it, it seems like their condemnation and their judgment is idle. It's just in neutral and nothing's happened. Why does God let that happen? Why doesn't he do something? Well, Peter steps in here and he says, the condemnation of the wicked, specifically in this text, these false teachers and all of those who would follow them and embrace their teaching, which by the way, I think is summarized down there in verse 10, when he says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. These seem to be two of the primary characteristics of the false teachers, and they certainly are of our day and time, and if we're honest, oftentimes ourselves as well. The lust of defiling passion, sexual promiscuity, sexual immorality, free sex, a loosening of all, if not eliminating all of the boundaries, anything goes is what has led us not, not just to things like maybe where we started with premarital sex and not just to a perversion of the sexual relationship in marriage through adultery and finding another partner and abandoning your, you know, your current partner. It, 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 it's moved on in. It's escalated now to crossing gender lines and homosexuality and doing that which the Bible describes as unnatural. All of those things, all of those things uh, fall under this category of the lust of defiling passion in verse 10 and the despising of authority. Isn't, is this what the false teachers were doing? They're saying, oh no, we don't listen to the apostles. We don't listen to the church. We don't pay attention to the Old Testament scriptures. We've seen all of that. Saw it at the end of chapter one. And therefore we don't listen to God. We want to do what we want to do. We want to be the boss. We want to be in charge of our own life. Think about how those two things are characteristic of our culture and they draw us, they tempt us as well. So Peter says, he says the condemnation for those things isn't in neutral and their destruction is not asleep. Language of the New Testament, this last description here is one that speaks of drowsiness. Peter says the destruction of these individuals whose lives are characterized by these things and choose these things as opposed to righteousness, their judgment is sleeping with one eye open. Peter personifies judgment here and he pictures it as an executioner that is ready in a moment's time to strike. And, and so he says, God is, is promising that he will, he will bring judgment on the wicked. 
Condemnation isn't idle. Destruction isn't asleep. It's all moving forward and it will show up. It will come. It's a word we need to hear. We need to hear for a number of reasons. We, we need to be strengthened in our faith when we uh, find ourselves at those times in which we're, we're saying, I, it makes sense what these people are saying. Why doesn't God do something? And it, why do you let that happen, God? It sees if you're a just God, you would do what's right and wouldn't let these. And, and, and our faith has a tendency to buckle under that, to be weakened. And, and, and we need to remember this simple thing. We need to be reminded of what we already know, and that is condemnation of the wicked is not idle, and their judgment is not asleep. It's going to happen. This, this is a text about hell. And I know, I know the stereotypical mindset that thinks that this is all we talk about in the church. And if you're here for any period of time, you know it's not. But so many people think that and think this is all preachers do and all they're talking about. But the truth of the matter is when we are honest with the pages of Scripture and we come to texts like this, we have to be reminded that it is real. It's real and we can't take it lightly. And I stand, I stand here as a preacher responsible for preaching this text. Knowing that I have family members that this is describing. That I've got friends, that I've got people in my neighborhood. God, God is saying their condemnation, where they're headed, has been in place for a long time. And it's still there. And the destruction for which they're headed is not asleep, it's ready to strike at any moment. This is a weighty subject. If you're here without Christ today, I'm compelled to say, don't, don't overlook this. I got saved as a nine-year-old boy for one reason, because I didn't want to go to hell. I wasn't looking for God. I didn't understand all that I understand now about God's goodness and his grace and the theological concepts that I understand. What I knew as a nine-year-old boy is that even though I was in church and I grew up in a Christian home, that that was not sufficient to keep me out of hell and get me into heaven. And I wanted to go to heaven. And I didn't want to experience the judgment of God. You say those are impure motives for getting saved. What do you expect from a lost person? Pure motives. And God in his grace accepted the fact that I didn't want to go to hell and I didn't want to live under this, under his judgment. And he met me there and he showed me Christ. And since that time, I've learned a lot more about who he is. But where it started was, I didn't want this. 
And so I would say to you today, if that's the only motive you have right now, take it. If it's the only thing you're feeling, if it's the only thing you're sensing that you, you look at this, their condemnation is an idol and their destruction is asleep, and you say, I don't want that to be the commentary on my life, then embrace it. Embrace Jesus. Repent of your sins and trust Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. God promises justice in the future. Secondly, God's, God's proved his justice in the past. You know, like you, I, I get frustrated during election season with all of the campaign ads and the mudslinging and the name calling. It just, it gets old and it's not good. It's not right. But I'm intrigued sometimes when candidates appeal to a track record. They say, this is the way I voted in order to say to potential voters, uh, this indicates this is the way I'll vote in the future. Sometimes they point to their opponent and say, look at the way he or she has voted. Why do they do that? Because it is, it is readily assumed that the way a person has acted in the past is, gives some indication of how they will act in the future. Track records are important. So Peter appeals to God's track record in this passage of scripture. And so what you have from verse four, really through verse 10, is you have a huge if-then statement. Do you, know what, do you know what an if-then statement is? You know, it just says whether you learned it in math or English composition or whatever the case is, if this is true, then this follows. And so when Peter appeals to God's track record, he says, if his track record is any indication of who he is and what he does, then this is what's going to happen. And so you'll see in verse four, at the beginning of your English text, for if God did not spare angels, then in verse five, if he did not spare the ancient world, verse six, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, verse seven, if he rescued Lot, then look at verse nine, then you see it. This is the way this passage of Scripture is laid out. And these, these next two truths actually grow out of that long if-then statement. So the second truth we put on the table is God's promise. Uh, God has proved his justice in the past. In verses 4 through 8, we look at God's track record. And we look at it through three examples Peter gives us. The first example is fallen angels in verse 4. He says that if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now listen, we, we don't know exactly what these, what these guys did. We're, we're not given that information. Many Bible scholars believe this is a reference to Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4 when angels came down and they had sexual relationships with, with human females. And so they crossed species lines. There's some indication of that in the book of Jude, which you remember is a companion letter to, to Second um, uh, Peter. I think Jude probably borrowed from Second Peter, but he talks about many of the same things. He talks about this one. In Jude, there's only one chapter, so verse 6, and the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. So, so, so you, you hear what he says. They, they didn't stay with their own position of authority, but they left their proper... Bottom line is they crossed the line. They crossed what God had marked out for them. 
They, they, they exceeded the boundaries that he had put in their lives, whatever that means. Jude will go on to mention Sodom and Gomorrah and the indulgence in sexual immorality and pursuing unnatural desires here. Many think that he is attaching these two things together and saying, this is what the angels is. The bottom line is we don't know. What we know is that they got outside their boundaries. They moved beyond what God had marked out for them. And so what happened? God cast them into hell. Language of the New Testament, the word translated hell is... Tartarus comes from tartar, and this is not the stuff that you put on your fish. It's actually a, an idea that came out of Greek mythology that referred to a place where the spirits of the most wicked people were, 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 were condemned to. So they were sent to this place. Peter likely is borrowing from Greek mythology because of the awareness of all the people he would be writing to that were saved out of that background who would identify with this, kind of like a metaphor he's using here to describe what God did with these sinning angels, these angels that moved outside. He, he put them in this place and he committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, it says, to be kept until the judgment. The, the, the idea is that these sinning angels have been put in a place of temporary punishment and, and they, will, they will stay there in bondage and change until the ultimate judgment. Now, it's important for us to think through that and understand the seriousness, the weightiness of what's being described here. For one reason is that all angels that sin don't have this destiny. All angels that, that, that got outside their boundaries are not, are, are, are not in this situation. These angels did something that, that destined them, that determined, that was worthy of, of this kind of punishment. So how do we, we know that all of them are? Because Ephesians 6 and so many other places tells us that all fallen angels or demons are not in a place like this. Where are they? Well, they're here. They're, they're, they're in this world. They're out there. They're harassing you. They're oppressing you. They're chasing you down. They're, they're, they're in this world. And so I just simply tell you that to tell you we need to think about the seriousness of what is being described here that God did. And Peter's point is, here's the first example. Here's the first example that God has not overlooked. He's not overlooked wickedness. Even with sinning angels, he did this. Obviously, by implication, God preserved some good angels because we know there are good angels. We're thankful for that. But we don't understand all of what all of that looks like. The Bible doesn't give us all the details. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that you're going to judge angels. What in the world is that about? What's that going to look like? I, I don't know. We don't have all the details. But Peter's point does not necessitate that we have all of the details of what's happening. He's trying to make one point, and that is God in the past has not overlooked judgment. He has been just. Example number two is Noah and the flood. Recorded in Genesis 6 through 8, the story, but here Peter says, if God did not spare the ancient world, and then he straight up tells us, but instead preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, 
with his family when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So here's the second time, the second example that Peter's saying God's track record shows that he didn't overlook sin. That he didn't just give a get out of jail free card to the culture in Noah's day. He kept them, uh, he, he didn't spare the ancient world, uh, the, the world of the ungodly, the end of the verse says. He brought the flood, he judged it, but then Peter also tells us, but God, in the midst of that, he, he, he preserved, he rescued Noah. And so we begin to see more vividly the contrast that is happening here in these examples by implication in verse four, God judged uh, the sinning angels, but he preserved some other angels, obviously. In verse five, he judged the entire world, but he rescued Noah and his family out of it. Example number two. Example number three, Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the most lengthy one in the passage. It goes from verse, verses six through eight. The story found in Genesis 18 and 19 of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter says, if God did that, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. Interesting to read some of the commentary, contemporary commentary on that region in Syria. This is true. It's never been rebuilt. Seems like this just eternal devastation and destruction that is there. Notice what he says next. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Don't miss this, beloved. Language of the New Testament, there is a participial form here that indicates that this is still going. He did something in the past that its ramifications, its message, its sound is still in effect today. He made Sodom and Gomorrah an example of what is going to happen to all the ungodly. You know what that means? It means when we look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah today, we see a picture of the justice of God that is going to come about by virtue of the condemnation of all who reject him. That is, that, is a, that is a strong word right there. He made an example out of them. I'm intrigued, burdened really by a lot of the new parenting philosophies that are out there. I guess you get this, when you get to be a grandparent, you get to, you get to think like this, you know. But I, but I, but I know, I, you know, I hear a lot today that parents are told, you know, you got to, you know, be careful because you want to scar your children for life. And one of the things you don't want to do is don't ever embarrass them in public. Because if you embarrass them in public, then that's really going to leave a mark on them. And I, I don't get that because when I was a kid, if we were getting ready to go out somewhere, our parents would line us up and say, now y'all better behave or we'll embarrass you. And they would make an example out of us to one another, to our other siblings. You see it all the time in public. It's heartbreaking. Defiance sometimes of kids in grocery store and restaurants and parents just not wanting to embarrass them, not wanting to, just, just letting it go with no correction at all. God sometimes makes an example out of people and he did here in Sodom and Gomorrah centuries ago for our benefit today to say to say this is the destiny of the ungodly and then he leans in to God's rescuing in verse 7 
if he rescued righteous Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And he unpacks that a little bit. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, now watch this. Make sure you understand what's being said here. What's being said, first of all, and most importantly, is that God rescued Lot. But I want you to see what he rescued him out of. He rescued him out of, according to verses 7 and 8, a deteriorating moral compass in his life due to his exposure to what he saw and what he heard at the end of verse eight there in this sensual, sexually free, sexually perverted town of Sodom. Lot saw that, he heard it, he was exposed to it. And what's being described here is that over time, his moral compass was being knocked around and it was deteriorating. Now now there's, there's a couple of things we need to see. One is a word of great, great encouragement. And that is that God rescued him out of that. And God is faithful. Just like we sang the songs a moment, he's faithful to do that. But let's not miss the other side. Let's not miss the application, the exhortation, the connection with our lives today in a culture where it seems that we cannot escape exposure, hearing about, hearing with our ears, seeing with our eyes, sexual perversion, sexual promiscuity. Beloved, listen to me. And I'm, I'm right there. I'm not pointing the finger anywhere but right here, but knowing that most all of us are in the same boat. If we could take some way measure what we allow into our homes today by way of television, by way of movies, what we go to see in the name of entertainment with regard to exposure to sexual promiscuity and and disobedience to God, if we could take that and line it up side by side with what we let into our homes a generation ago, it would shock us. And you know that. You know that in your lifetime. But you see, here's the problem. Here's the deal. We tell ourselves, we tell ourselves, well, if, if, you know, if we didn't watch any of that or see any, we wouldn't watch or see anything. Listen, as if that was a justification. As if that was a justification for exposing ourselves. But see, here's the deal. The other thing we don't realize is what it does to us. What it does to our moral compass. It's like a frog in the kettle thing. When you put a frog in cold water, you know, in a kettle and turn up the heat, he'll stay there. He doesn't realize the heat is there ultimately till, till, till it kills him. And this is what happens to us. We don't, we don't realize. We just look and say, well, hey, I don't participate in it. I don't participate in it, but you're hearing it all the time and you're seeing it all the time. And, and what it's doing is it's affecting your moral compass indicated by the fact that what I allowed my kids to sit and watch was a far cry from what my parents let me to sit and watch. And what I sit and watch today is probably a far cry from what I let my kids do. And it just keeps going. We say we don't participate in it, but we think if we don't participate in it, that it's all neutral. Listen to the word of the Lord. It's not me. It's not my opinion. 
This is the word of the Lord. This is the example that he gives. This is what was happening to Lot. And God reached in and he rescued him out of this. Now, before we leave this, this track record of God, don't miss the gospel here. You know, in, in verse five, we're told that Noah was a, was a herald of righteousness. And then twice in verses eight and nine, where Lot is described, or uh, excuse me, verses seven and eight, Lot is described as a righteous person. But understand that God is not describing these men with the term righteousness here as if they deserve to be rescued. If you know anything about the stories of both Noah and Lot, you know this is not the case. First thing that Noah did after he got off the boat was get drunk, right? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, if I was on a boat that long with all those animals, I'd probably be drinking before that, you know? No, he's not a picture of righteousness, nor was Lot. Lot probably shouldn't have been in the city of Sodom in the first place. That even there, even though he was hospitable, he was morally depraved, compromising. And he had to be dragged out of there. And then he got drunk and he got out of there. These guys are not pictures of somebody that deserves this. Why? Because nobody deserves it. None of us deserve it. None of us can look at wickedness and righteousness today and say, oh man, those wicked people, God ought to zap them as if we had done something to deserve what we got. The whole, the idea of rescuing that you see in verse seven suggests somebody is in a position that they can't do anything about and they need somebody from the outside to come. And God came with his special forces in the gospel in Jesus Christ. And he lived a life you couldn't live. He died a death you should have died, rose from the dead to give you back the life of God and none of it you deserved. None of it I deserve. Don't come to this passage thinking, boy, that's right. Righteousness is wicked. Man, I'm in the righteous camp over here. Those wicked people are going to be judged. Well, you may be in the righteous camp, beloved, but you didn't get there on your own merit. You got there because of Jesus. Because he did something for you that you can't do for yourself. This is the gospel. God is a rescuing God. He is a God who comes to our aid. And that's the conclusion that Peter draws in the third truth. It's the then statement in verse nine. And basically he says, God provides justice in the present. Think about what's happening. These people were buckling spiritually under the weight of the teaching of the false teachers. And, and sometimes it was temptation and sometimes it was doubt. And sometimes it was, man, maybe those guys are right. And it's been so long, Jesus isn't coming back. And maybe there isn't a judgment. And man, my flesh is telling me, jump in with both feet and the culture here, all of those kinds of things. And so Peter comes and he says in verse Verse nine, he says this, first of all, that this, this track record of God means that he rescues the godly from trials. Do you see it? Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Then, then, if this is true, if, 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 if he didn't pass over the, the sinning angels, if he didn't pass over the ancient world, but preserved Noah, if he didn't pass over the sin of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he rescued Lot out of it, then the Lord knows how to strengthen you. He knows how to keep you from throwing in the towel and say, I can't get away from all this stuff. I may as well just give in. He knows how to rescue and preserve your salvation. This is the word of hope and encouragement that he gives to us here. He wants us to know that God rescues the godly from trials. Now notice, it doesn't say that he keeps the godly from trials. 
Notice it does not say that God has made a promise that he's never going to let you go through something that's difficult. He's never going to be. He he doesn't even say here, listen to me. He doesn't even say here that, that he will never let you get in a situation where you might lose your life for the sake of the gospel. You know why? Because God's rescuing is always from an eternal standpoint. And every time God rescues somebody, he picks them up and he sets their feet on higher ground, on a higher plane. And you know what? If you die for the sake of the gospel, God still rescues you and lifts you up and sets your feet on higher ground. He is a rescuing God. He is a rescuing God. He rescues the godly from trials. Listen to this verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It's almost like Paul saying, quit your whining like you're the only one. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You see that? He will never let you go through anything that you don't have the ability to endure. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, all our excuses go out the window here. None of us get to say, and this is just too much. It's too tough. It's too tempting. I, 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 I just can't say no to this. I, I just can't, you know, I, it, all of that's gone. Why? Because God is a rescuing God and he rescues the righteous. He rescues his children. He rescues you. He rescues me. But not only that, not only does God rescue the godly from trials, he reserves the godless for torment. Basically, the backside of verse nine says the same thing as the backside of verse three, uh, excuse me, says the same thing as verse four up there with regard to the sinning angels. He says, God knows how to keep the righteous, unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So he knows how to rescue the godly from trials, but he also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now that could mean one of two things, probably both. One is it means that, you know, when someone dies without Christ in this world, that God is, is, he's got them in a similar place as these sinning angels in some kind of temporary punishment that is, that is, they'll be wait, they'll, they'll be preserved there until the ultimate judgment comes. The other thing the language allows for is just simply saying he's sleeping with one eye open and he's not overlooking all of the wickedness in this world. He's not overlooking what unbelievers have coming to them, he can preserve their judgment until it is ultimately fleshed out. And I think theologically both are true. And we've already looked at verse 10 with regard to these two primary characteristics of indulging in the lust of the defiling passions and despising authority. Peter underscores it and says, this is, this is what not only characterizes the culture, but this is what God is particularly serious about and will definitely judge. People going to hell is a hard pill for folks to swallow in our day and time, understandably so. But we have to understand this, that the crime is always, uh, the, the punishment is always in relation, not just to the crime that was committed, but to the one who was was sinned against, the crime was against. And, 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 and crime in the Bible is sin. And the person that we sin against is a holy, righteous God. Amen. And you know what that means? 
it merits the reality that the only way he can be fair, the only way he can be just is to judge the wicked. God in his grace is a rescuing God. God doesn't in one sense send people to hell. We're already headed there, beloved. Listen, that's the track we're on. We are born with a sin nature and every single one of us will come to the place where we willfully choose against sin against God. And the very first time we sin, very first time we sin was enough to separate us from God for all of eternity. That's how holy he is. We are on a runaway train to hell. And God steps in and he rescues people off of that runaway train. So don't sit around complaining about a God who sends people to hell. Come to the place where you say, I understand we're all headed for hell because of what we've done. And God has chosen to rescue us off of that through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray for us. And after that, we'll stand and sing a song of response. Maybe as a Christian, you'd like to leave your seat and come to one of these pastors who will be here at the front and let them help you. Maybe you want them to pray for you. Maybe you want them to hold you accountable. Maybe you just want to share with them what God is saying. All of that will help you drive a stake in whatever God's doing in your heart. Others of you may be here without Christ or you came in without Christ. Maybe while we were singing, while I was preaching, you sensed God drawing you to himself. You know you don't want to live under his judgment. You know you don't want to go to hell, but you want his life. He's made provision for that through Jesus Christ. If you know in your heart of hearts that today you're trusting Christ for the very first time, I want to invite you to come let one of these pastors know. When we stand in a moment and start singing, you come and put it in your own words. Tell them, I, I want to follow Christ. Tell them, I, I, I want to, to give my life to Jesus. Tell them, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to live under God's judgment. If that's what your heart is telling you, respond to it, beloved. And let them help you understand the gospel and what God has done in Christ Jesus. Lord, we worship you as the judge of the whole earth. We acknowledge your justice, past, present, and future. And we thank you that you have rescued us in Jesus Christ out of it. Pray you would strengthen the faith of believers today. I pray that you would save lost people. You would draw them to yourself in the beauty of your glorious salvation in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.